This morning, I'd like to speak with you about the future and how to best plan for the future. And of course, I'm going to take my cue from James, who guides us in this regard. But before we look at what James has said about planning for the future, I want to suggest that there is a spectrum that we tend to work within as it relates to the passing of time. So on the one end of the spectrum, there are those who are panicked by the passing of time. There are those who are panicked by the passing of time. This might be the student who is mindful of the brief amount of time they have remaining to study for an important exam or to complete an important assignment. Also panicked by the passing of time might be the business person whose pile of tasks on their desk exceeds the amount of time they have left in the day. Panicked by the passing of time might be the parent who is frantically running their children to and fro to school and to every appointment at a pace that suggests they are worried about getting everything done. So on the one side of the spectrum are those who are panicked by the passing of time. On the other side of the spectrum are those who are presuming upon time. Those who are presuming upon time. This is the person who meticulously plans their life without any reference to God. Who meticulously plan out their life without any reference to the divine plan and to divine purposes. Now as we think of this spectrum and we think of those who might lead their life and plan their life without reference to God, we might naturally think, well, James is talking about the non-Christian. This is what people who don't believe in God, this is how they live. But no, it would be a mistake to think that those who plan without reference to God are only the non-Christians. My observation is that followers of Jesus... Even devout followers of Jesus often make elaborate plans for their life without giving much thought to what God wants them to do. It is common, unfortunately is far too common to see Christians establish career plans, make family plans, make travel plans, without any reference to God whatsoever. And it is this Christian who is presuming upon time that James is issuing a warning to. He says, now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this city or to that city. Spend a year there, carry on business and make money. The example James cites concerns a person's attitude toward travel and commerce as it relates to future events. Now I don't want you to imagine that planning is bad. I don't want you to imagine that engaging in commerce is somehow an evil thing. James is not saying that it's bad to map out what you want to do. He's not saying it's bad to make plans to do business. These things are good. Planning is important. Engaging in commerce is necessary. 
But what James is suggesting is the importance of collaborating with God as we make our plans. And this is what I want us to see this morning from James. The importance of collaborating with God as we make our plans. As King Solomon once said, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand in vain. So in the spirit of Solomon, James warns us of the peril of presuming that we can do anything of significance apart from God's approval and apart from God's assistance. And so to motivate us, because we're not a people that are easily prone to change our ways, so James rolls out a compelling logic that's intended to motivate us to submit ourselves to God. And in order to do this, he lays out a couple of our limitations. He spells out two of our big limitations. He begins by pointing out why you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. Which is another way of saying you can't pre predict the future. None of us can predict the future. We don't know what will happen tomorrow. We don't know when the economy will take a downturn. Or in our case, we don't know when the economy will fully recover. We don't know when and we don't know how our body will begin to break down. We don't know when we will be overtaken by illnesses of varying kinds. We can't predict when systems or technologies that we depend on will fail us. We don't know what will happen tomorrow. We don't know the future. That's the first limitation. The second limitation that James identifies, and this, this is huge, the brevity of our life. The brevity of our life. He asks, uh, quite rhetorically, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Now, I don't want you to imagine that James is being nice here. I don't want, I, I don't want to read this to, to, improperly and say, well, you are like a mist and you are here for a little while and then you are gone. He's not being poetic here. He's being stern. He's, he's, he's painting in stark terms, you're a mist. He's trying to say in the very plainest of ways, your life is largely insignificant in terms of its span. Now I realize there are a great many preachers who get up on a Sunday morning and they say from pulpits, probably in this country and throughout America and Canada, there are preachers who say, you're a somebody. You're a somebody. Everything you do is significant. You can do it. We believe in you. James doesn't say that. James says you're a mist. You're not going to be here for very long. Your life in the context of human history, with the backdrop of eternity, your life is not that significant. Now you might be thinking, well James is a bit of a grumpy guy, isn't he? I like the preacher who says I'm a somebody. I like the preacher who says he believes in me. Is James engaging in some kind of morbid introspection? I don't think he is. 
What James is saying might not be very pleasant to listen to, but the accuracy of what he's saying is helpful and important for us to hear. I wonder if you see in people what I see today. I see in our society, everywhere I look, a denial of the reality of death. People living their life in denial that they will someday, quite soon, relatively speaking, die. Now I know intellectually we all get it. Intellectually we know that this life isn't forever. Intellectually, we know we're going to die, but somehow we've managed the skill of pushing our mortality to the back, to the most remote part of our mind. And quite frankly, I fear we are being dishonest with ourselves with regard to the significance of our lifespan. Now, some of us are reasoning, well, if I exercise daily, I go for walks every day. Some of you are reasoning, well, I'm on a gluten-free diet and I've never felt better. Some of you are thinking, well, I now eat kale. Did you know kale is a superfood? And, and I'm exercising, I'm gluten-free, I'm eating kale, and I'm going to add years to my life. Well, you might. You might. Those are all, I guess, good things. I, I don't do a lot of those things I've just suggested. I don't eat kale. I don't go for the gluten-free. But I'm guessing the science is decent. And if you do those things, you'll live a few years longer. You'll live a few years longer than the guy who eats Doritos and chicken wings. Okay? I get that. I know. I eat a lot of chicken wings, a lot of Doritos, and I understand the science. You eat kale, gluten-free, you're going to outlast me by a few years at least. But, in each case, what James is saying is true. You're still a mist. Whether you eat kale, the superfood, or whether you eat Doritos and chicken wings, the same is true. You're still a mist. Your life is still going to be brief relative to the context of human history with the backdrop of eternity. We're not here for very long. By highlighting these limitations, James is making a compelling case for why we ought to submit ourselves to God. Why we ought to submit our plans to God. Now, I, I don't know if this is entirely true, but I recently heard what the most requested song at a secular funeral is. And again, I didn't fact check this, so it might not be right, but it, it sounds plausible. The most requested song at a secular funeral. And, and I'll give you a second to kind of guess in your mind and see if you get it right. It's Frank Sinatra's song, I Did It My Way. Here's a verse. And now the end is here. And so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway. And more, much more than this. I did it my way. What is James trying to tell us in chapter 4 of this letter? He's giving a stern warning 
to any follower of Jesus who intends to go through life with a I did it my way kind of attitude. We recall words from James earlier in the chapter in verse 6 and 7. James says, God opposes the proud. James says, God's not for everybody. And he's quoting from Proverbs 3. God is against the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Friends, it is one of the distinguishing marks of a Christian to have a God-first approach to life. The I did it my way, it may be a nice song to listen to. And I apologize, maybe I've just ruined one of your favorite songs. I it's a decent enough song musically, I guess. But the Christian is not to do it our way. The Christian is to be marked as one who does it God's way. And some of the ways we do this is we submit our schedule to God. We go through our daytime or our calendar and we're praying to the Lord to ask us to organize our time and to give our time to purposes that please Him. We also use our talents. God has gifted us uniquely in various ways and we're to use those strengths and gifts for God's glory. He's also given us resources. He's given us, in most of our cases, He's given us more resources than we need to feed and clothe ourselves. And so we're encouraged in Scripture to use some of our excess resources or our first fruits, if you will, not the leftovers, but the first fruits, to invest in His kingdom purposes. That's part of what it means to have a God-first life, is that every part of our life is connected to God. That we're not compartmentalizing or saying, this is my deal, and when I go to church, that's God's deal, and maybe when I'm praying, no, all of it is God's. A God-first approach to life touches everything we do, school, business, home life. We all want to be marked, I hope, by a God-first approach to life. And that will be hard because we live in a me-first society. If you look out for your own best interests, there will be a ton of people who will come alongside you and say, that's what you need to do. you got to look out for yourself. you got to do what's right for you. There are a lot of people who will affirm you in a me-first approach to life. But the Bible presents something different. It's a God-first approach to life. The second distinguishing mark of the Christian, first you have a God-first life. The second is you have a God-willing approach to your plans. You have a God-willing approach to your plans. James puts it this way. He says, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, if it's the Lord's will, then we will do this or we will do that. Now I realize there's a robotic way to apply that text. And we see it here in the Bahamas, don't we? We see it. If, if I say to you in a personal conversation, well, I'll see you tomorrow. Probably many of you are going to respond to me by saying, well, God's fair life. Right? We say, see you tomorrow or see you next week. The average Bahamian is going to say, God's fair life. And there can be a robotic response to that. But God's spare life is just another way of saying Lord willing. Lord willing. 
And some of you, I tested this out on one of our members this morning, and the test didn't work, but some of you might remember, especially if you have Methodist roots, you might remember there was a time when at the end of written correspondence, you would sign your name and put two letters. Anyone know what the two letters are? D-V. D-V, which stands for Deo Valente. Deo Valente. Deo, God. Valente, from which we get volition, will. So Deo Valente, God willing. There was a time in our culture when, when you wrote someone a letter, you know, for, for the young people here, you've maybe never even written a letter. You're, you're just doing emails and Facebook messages. Well, I even remember what it was like to write letters, but I didn't sign it DV. Deo Valente, if the Lord wills. We don't want to be robotic in that. I'm not suggesting that you all email me this week and at the end of your email put DV. That's not what I'm calling you to. But what this passage calls us to is the reminder we're not in control. And this is really important for some of us. And I hate to admit this, but I don't want to stand here in the pulpit as a liar. There are a bunch of things in life that I like to have control over. And I need to say it, one, because it's true. But I need to say it because I think there's a bunch of you that would have to confess the same. We like things neat and tidy. We want to be able to manage things. We want to be able to control things. We don't like things outside of our box. Well, this passage reminds us we don't get to control the parameters. We're not in control. We're not powerful enough to be in control. So by saying, if the Lord wills, we're admitting that there's someone who could trump our plans at any moment. Someone who has the power to change our course in a moment. We need a God-willing approach to life. A God-willing approach to life says, hey, I want to go here... But I'm open to the Lord changing my course. I want to go through this door, but if the Lord has me go through another door, I defer to His wisdom because He's God. A God-willing approach to life says, I may really want to obtain this, but if the Lord doesn't want me to have that thing, I'm willing to set it aside. Because I want what God wants. In contrast to a God-willing approach to life is the person, and we've all seen this person, probably in the business world, someone who says, I want this thing, and I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to do whatever it takes to bring about this outcome. James says it's not up to us, ultimately. James says, and these aren't my words, he says if we talk like that, we're boasting... And we're bragging. If we suggest that we have control, if we suggest we can get things without reference to God, it's boasting, it's bragging, and James says his words, all such boasting is evil. That seems like a harsh thing to say. I mean, how often do we say, well, I'm going here tomorrow, or I'm going there next week. Or I want to buy this, or I want to obtain that. It seems harmless. 
And I probably say things like that all the time without thinking. But James says, that's evil. We don't get to control where we go or what we possess. If we make claims without reference to God and His sovereign will, James says we're sinning. We don't know the future, and our life is far too brief and far too fragile to be making assertions without any reference to a God who is all-knowing and a God who is eternal, the God who governs this universe. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, this, this whole message has been a downer. I've been told that I'm a mist. I'm told that my life is fragile, even if I eat kale. I, I've, been, I've been told that I really can't do anything of significance if God isn't with me. What can you tell me that's positive, Brit? Well, our future may be uncertain to us, but our future is certain to God. Our future is in the hands of one who can be trusted. And this is the logic behind James' call to submit to God. It's hard to submit to people because we don't know if they can be trusted. We don't know if they will manipulate things if we submit to them. But James says, submit to God and good things will happen. And we know this. We don't even have to isolate our study to James. If there's ever a verse to memorize in this regard, it's Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28. We know that in all things, all things, the good and the bad, in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him and those who are called according to His purposes. So bad things happen to us. And at the moment, they, it makes no sense to us. We can't find any rhyme or reason. We may not even understand the rhyme or reason in this lifetime. But we have the assurance that everything that happens to us can be managed by a sovereign God in such a way that there will ultimately be a good outcome. And that's why we live by faith. Because we see some bad things happening, but we're told that in the invisible realm is an all-powerful God working all things in our life for our good. So do I know my future? No, I don't. But I do know that God is working to ensure that my future is good and that my future pleases Him. Now, I, I want to share an example, and, and I don't want to pretend like I'm, I'm great at submitting to God, because I'm not nearly as good at submitting to God as I want to be or ought to be, but I want to share with you an example of, of where I, I think I actually did what James was asking, and, and it worked out beautifully. I shared with this congregation, I think three weeks ago, maybe it was four weeks ago, uh, that I got news about my work permit renewal. Uh, some of you may know that my work permit expired at the beginning of June of this year, and without that renewal, uh, back I go to Canada, bags packed, see you later, nothing I can do. You need the government's permission. So I, I got that letter that said that the government's renewing my work permit for five years. My work permit's renewed through 2019. 
So you know that, but what I didn't share with you was my emotional response to receiving that letter and, and why it was an emotional response. Because I, I want to tell you that I have been praying persistently, persistently over the last several months about my work permit situation. And I don't normally, I'm, I'm kind of like, oh Lord, if you will, if it pleases you, I'm like the guy who prays in general terms. To a fault. But on this, I was very specific. I said, Lord, I believe you've called me here. I think you're doing good things here. I want five years. Lord, can you get me a five-year permit? And I prayed that over and over and over again. But then I got talking to people. Oh, Brent, they don't really give out five-year permits. You know, my friend over there, he just got a two-year permit. I hear you can get a three-year permit, but even those are rare. You know, the government's tightening up these days. They're not giving work permits to people they used to. You, you know, you're, just count yourself blessed if you get a three-year permit. Count yourself blessed if you get any permit, is what I was told. So I kept praying for a five-year permit. Some of the elders are praying for a five-year permit. A five-year permit comes. In fact, we, we, someone was sent to go pay for the permit, and at immigration they said, oh, there's a mistake. And they said, well, what's the mistake? Well, we don't give five-year permits. This is someone at immigration. We don't give five-year permits. Well, the letter says five years, so they gave five years. I was totally overcome with emotion when I got that letter. And here's why. Because I had trusted God to set the course of the next chapter of my life. And He gave me exceeding abundantly beyond all that I could ask or imagine. I gave it over to God in this instance. And He delivered beyond what was normally the case. We don't give out five-year permits. Well, talk to Him. He can do what He wants. And He did. And I share this with you because here's what I worry about. That we don't submit to God because we think what we can get for ourselves is better. Think for yourself. I believe there are people who think, I'm going to leave God out of this because if I go to God, I'm going to get something less than what I want. So we go it at our own. And what I want to share with you is that has never been my experience. My experience has always been the opposite. When I, when I go at it on my own, I get less than. When I go to God, He gives more than. What I want you to know is that when we submit to God, it is then that our satisfaction and peace is at their highest levels. I want you to know that the God that you've come to worship this morning is not a stingy God. That the God of this universe, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, He is a generous God. And this is why we submit to Him. This is why we say He's worthy of our devotion. And I know I've said a lot today, and I always worry when I say a lot, you lose a lot. But if you can just cling to this one take-home. I mean, maybe if you've taken notes, you'll get a few take-homes. But take this one thing, if nothing else. Based on what I read in James, based on what I see in all of Scripture, 
I want you to hang your hat on this. God can be trusted with your future. God can be trusted with your future. And you're smart people. I'm tempted to just say that over and over again. But if you can just repeat it in your mind, it might be the most important thing you walk away with today. God can be trusted with your future. I want to remind you of the other side. We sin gravely if we say, I'm going my way. We sin gravely if we say, I'm going my way. My efforts are almost always in vain when I do it my way. And so my friends, I beg you in all things, in all circumstances, do it God's way. Do it God's way. And you will be blessed. Beyond measure, you will be satisfied and you will experience the peace of Christ, which surpasses all understanding. Amen.